There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Homicide Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How you doing? I'm doing good. You know, a lot, some new information has come out, and it's, um, frankly, it's disturbing. It's disturbing because what it says to the public and what it says to the families, what it says to the Idaho community is that the police don't know what they're doing. And that's disturbing. Uh, you know, to come out with that statement early on, which I always, I thought right early on, we've been covering this since the beginning, that it was premature to say that this was targeted and personal. And, and early on, they also said, no one has anything else to worry about. No one in the community has anything to worry about. And I was like, what? How do those two things work in congruency with each other? They don't. If you're looking for a murderer and he's still out there, then everyone has something to worry about, you know? And to say that this was targeted and personal, which, you know, we can all see a knife attack to those of us who've worked homicides know that that is a personal very personal way, up close and personal way of killing somebody. And then to, to now try to retract that, that makes people very uncomfortable. It makes people think like, wait a minute, this case is going into its third week, right? This happened on November 13th. We are now at December 1st. And the investigators are changing up and saying that well, it may not have been personal. It may be targeted not toward a person, but toward the house. That makes no sense. It really doesn't. Like, stay with what you think it is and go with it and work with it and move forward with it. Don't try to retract it because it makes you look unprofessional and it makes you look like you don't know what you're doing. Or pull back and, you know, we're evaluating the situation. We're not sure. We don't have a perp in custody. Everybody should be on guard. Obviously, those are some of the things that I think they should have been putting out there. Listen, Billy, uh, they've given uh, some press conferences that came off as very professional. I, I liked what they said when they said it. However, the, uh, you know, the communication that they're, they're putting out there uh, is not good. They got to work on that better. It sounds like we were getting one set of statements from the police department, the law enforcement end of it. And then from the mayor's office or the prosecutor's office, we were getting a different uh, statement. So there's conflicting statements. They got to get their act together. There should be one way of transmitting information to the public, not from the prosecutor's office, the mayor's office, the FBI, the police. Let's just hone it in on one uh, way of funneling the information to the public. And again, like you said, Billy, and I agree with you hundred percent on that. Till we have a person in custody that we know committed this horrible, horrible uh, quadruple homicide, yes, there's reason to be concerned, and there is a danger to the community, 100%. Phil, 
Bill, that's my whole point is that the messaging here has been horrendous. And let me play this here and uh the investigation into the brutal murders of those four University of Idaho students. The community gathered to mourn them in an emotional vigil last night as the Moscow police chief spoke to Kana Whitworth in his first sit-down interview. Good morning, Kana. Robin, good morning. You know, as the father of college-age students himself, and like many on the force, a graduate of the University of Idaho, these homicides have stunned the department and the community that gathered for the first time last night, filling the football stadium to honor these victims and hear from their families. Overnight vigils held across the state of Idaho mourning the deaths of four University of Idaho students brutally murdered in their off-campus home. For the first time, Madison Mogan's father speaking out about his daughter. When I would meet people ever since she was first born, and the first thing I'd say is, well, my, I have this daughter, and she's, she works hard, and she has all these great friends in the sorority. Their murderer still on the loose, while authorities maintain this was a targeted and isolated attack without saying why. The reason why you believe it's it was targeted or the reasons are so crucial to the investigation that they cannot be revealed? And we are not going to reveal that. That's part of that investigation, trying to pull the pieces in that will help give us the before, the during, and the after. In his first sit-down interview, police chief James Fry emotional about the toll this has taken on the community. Do you believe that you were prepared to handle something like this? So we're trained um, very well. We're also aware when we need to bring in the Idaho State Police and the FBI or ATF. Now a multi-agency effort underway, investigators analyzing a mountain of evidence, but divulging no clear leads in nearly three weeks. There is no secrets in a small town. How is this a secret? That's why we're gonna continue to push through this investigation until we can uncover that secret. And, and when we do, it'll be, a, it'll be one of those days that um, a lot of relief will come to our community. Patience, a hard thing to ask for of families desperate for answers. The community and the family members really want some assurances from you. What I can offer is that we are going to work continuously and we're going to provide as many answers as we can. Now, when I asked the chief about this case being in its third week, he called that surreal. But Whit, he did go on to say they will not allow this case to go cold. But in the meantime, as you pointed out, still so much fear and concern in that community. All right, Kenneth, thank you. So, Phil, uh, how does that make you feel? Does that make you feel confident in the police that the police are on top of this uh does it give you pause as to where are they uh what are they going to have another press conference and notify the community as to where they are in this investigation maybe release some more information or are they going to keep tight-lipped and at this point i think that as i said earlier the messaging is poor they have to improve on the messaging because this community, this college community, this Idaho, this Mos Moscow, Idaho community, they don't feel very confident in their police department right now. I want to just mention a couple other things about this. And I'm not just, believe me, I am rooting for the Moscow Police Department. 
I hope that they solve this case. However, I've, I've seen some things as a trained homicide investigator that also give me pause. And one of the things was yesterday when they released or they, they invoiced all the vehicles that were in front of the house. And I immediately thought, did they search those vehicles day one? Or have the, was this the first time they've gone into those vehicles? Imagine, just imagine, and I'm just throwing this out there, that they found the knife in one of those cars. How would you even explain that? That, oh, we didn't look in the cars for two weeks. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they looked in the cars or if they hadn't, but I think we were all expecting those cars to be forensically uh, gone through by crime scene technicians. And I don't know if, in fact, that occurred or is going to occur. You know, there's several things that were concerning to me with regard to uh, expanding the search into the back area of the home, which happened last week based on a Fox News reporter being on scene. We have the situation with the cars. The cars, it should have been established day one. Are these cars going to be part of the crime scene or not? If they're not, remove them. Get them out of the way. Whoever owns them, come and take them. Or if they are going to be considered something of value that needs to be uh, evidence for crime scene uh, you know, has to be gone through there, forensically evaluate the cause. Then you do that. You, you, you have to freeze the area. No one should be going in and out. People were passing in and out of those cars, passing through those cars. If there's a, a any chance or a possibility that those cars could have some type of evidence, they blew it because it's, it's two and a half weeks. And, uh, you know, I don't want to knock anybody. I don't want to knock another agency or another police department or a brother officer. But I mean, now it seems like they're inventorying the cause to do forensic evaluation and we're two and a half weeks in. So that's a little bit concerning, uh, not a little bit. It's actually a lot concerning. And, you know, maybe those cars really don't have anything to do with it, but they should have established that right from the beginning and got them out of there. And, and, you know, just one less thing to worry about. So I, I don't know where they're going with this thing. The messaging is definitely off and I get it. They're a police department that, that ha has not had a homicide. Uh, I've heard seven years now today. I heard nine years, whatever it is, they're not handling homicides, high profile, cases on a daily basis. They need to get their act together, have one spokesman that speaks for the district attorney's office, that speaks for the police department, the FBI, the mayor, the college, everyone. One spokesperson that communicates with the media and the public, and this won't happen. Everybody will be on the same page. Daily, they have a briefing. They print it out. If nothing changes, they read it out and they say nothing changed. That's the way to do this type of uh, messaging in a situation like this. And Bill, you know, we've had the luxury of the Deputy Commissioner of Public Information which is a whole unit in the NYPD. Uh, many, many people work there. And that's the liaison that works with the media and the police department to release information and to communicate and to message. And it always worked pretty well. Obviously, there were times when uh, a little too much or not enough information came out. But on something like this, I don't really have a problem with them holding back stuff. But the mixed messaging that's a, that's a trip up. And they're giving, they're, they're painting um, a picture to the people, to the public at large that they may not know exactly what they're doing or they're making some mistakes. Now, I hope that's not the case. I hope that these cars weren't of value to the investigation because they waited two and a half weeks to, uh, to even uh, take them away from the location. You know, Phil, someone asked in the chat, did they search the cars on the scene? I don't know. I honestly don't know. If you're going to forensically go through a car, then you wouldn't search it on the scene because you need to bring it to like a, a garage where you could forensically have all the tools there 
all of the investigators there that are going through it. So did they search it on the scene? I don't know. It would have made sense to do that because, as I said, what if two weeks later the knife was found in one of those cars? How embarrassing would that be to the investigation? It would be horrendous. Let me play this. Bill, one more point about the cars before you play it. Now, two and a half weeks later, those cars were covered in snow. So if there was some type of physical evidence on any one of those cars on the exterior that now has been compromised, that's not a good thing. And I, I believe that some of those vehicles may be uh, some of the victims' cars. Again, if they were in those cars just before they got home, there might be some clue or something like that in there. They definitely should have been searched and should have been looked at, and they should have been evaluated in the beginning. But unfortunately, and again, I apologize for tr uh, you know talking against another police department, but this is really simple stuff that we see right in our faces. You know, folks, the other thing, the big question that everyone has, and I mentioned this day one because it's part of homicide investigation, Areas of entry and exit. We're into the third week. We still don't know, and I don't know, does the police department know how the, the killer got into the house? Do they know that? And do they know what through what exit did he leave? That would be pro more probable since he should have blood on his shoes upon leaving based on the bloodiness of this crime scene. We'll look at the back of the house. Um, you've got the balcony up top. There's a slider up top uh, around the corner. And then downstairs where you can see the Christmas lights are still on. We'll back up a little more here. Um, there's another way in uh, downstairs too, Ashley. So what's key here is that there's a sliding glass door on the second floor of the home that becomes the ground level as you walk up the hill. And then directly above it, there's another sliding glass door on the balcony. So it's possible that the kitchen sliding glass door was open. It's possible the killer might have gotten to that balcony. I don't know if you can show us, but it looks like from where you guys are, it's just a quick hop to get on the far corner of that balcony. Is that true or is it just an optical illusion? Is it quite a ways away? to get to that balcony from where you are. Um, to, to get up to the second floor, you mean? Yeah. Oh, we finally got unstuck. Sorry, I'm just, I'm keeping an eye on things. To get up on the second floor, um, it, would, it would be difficult. I mean, you'd probably need a little ladder or maybe if you got on top of a chair. Um, it, it's not like just a quick, easy hop, but it would be possible with, with something to stand on top of, I think. Okay, I was curious about that. I only have a couple seconds left, but Jenna on Twitter says, for a suspect to be cleared, does the person have to have a confirmed alibi? How is one officially cleared? So that's an interesting question. Um, and they, they, you know, they're not giving us a lot of information, but they are giving us a list of the people who have been cleared, and the list is, is quite long. I would imagine they'd have to have an alibi, um, explain where they were uh i mean what do you th i mean you might know better than me actually i think there'd have to be some concrete evidence for them to end up on that list well sure an alibi is darn uh helpful but also digital evidence if you clear a, a key going in or a camera catches you coming in with a timestamp at your office or your home or someone else's home that can also be extremely helpful uh in clearing somebody uh quickly thank you for watching Folks, to answer that, to clear somebody, A, which uh, Ashley Banfield was correct, a timestamp, uh, either a cell phone timestamp, a video timestamp, uh, other people seeing you somewhere at, that would preclude you from being at another location, a toll booth, an easy pass timestamp, 
putting you at another location that would have made it impossible for you to be at the end. To not forget this, interview and interrogation. If if detectives, in in their feelings, in their hunch, through their interviews, if they think this guy's not a good uh, a good suspect, and they clear him, they can do that. How, can they bring that person back in and reinclude them as a suspect? Absolutely. So if someone is cleared, that doesn't mean that they're not in the future to be considered at all. When a person, uh, I go to interview a person on a homicide or any heavy duty investigation, and they're going to tell me I wasn't there. I was at the gym. I was at the supermarket. I had gone to a friend's house. So uh, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to corroborate their statement. I'm going to make sure that they key in at this time. Do you have video? I see them going in. I see them working out. I see them leaving. Now I know that that person in that time frame. They're telling the truth. They were at that location. Same thing with a supermarket. Video cameras, receipts are uh, are time stamped. Um, you know, a friend's house. I'm going to go interview the friend. Do you have cameras? Uh, uh, you know, who, who are you? What's your name? Uh, can you corroborate that this person was there? That's how you can uh, firm up a person's statement or an alibi that they were not involved in a specific incident because they were somewhere else. Uh, there, sometimes you get the uh, person, you know, I was home in bed. I was asleep. I was by myself. That's a little more difficult. Then you have to rely on, like you said, Billy, maybe cell phone information. Now, even if his cell phone stood at that location, does not mean that he did not leave that, he or she did not leave the house without the cell phone. So there's going to be other things. We're going to look at ring doorbell cameras, whatever it is. Uh, when when uh, a person is uh, considered uh, talkable that we have to talk to this person. Let's go talk to them. Let's interview them. And now we cleared them. Doesn't mean we can't go back later on and say, you know what? There's evidence pointing towards this person. Let's look at them again. Let's double check and corroborate, you know, their, their, their alibi to corroborate it. Let's make sure. Is there a possibility that they were in cahoots who was that we to, uh, spoke to? So again, I don't discount anything. We clear a person doesn't mean they're not on the radar, radar screen at all, 100%. Just means that the story that they gave us, we checked it out. It makes sense. That doesn't seem like it. Uh, you know, maybe you have a, a, a videotape and you can 100% say that a person is at a location. That's a little different. Well, but we had... We had a case in Manhattan where um, this uh, dancer named Catherine Woods, beautiful girl, uh, she was murdered by her boyfriend. But at the same time, she lived with another guy. And for some reason, the big bosses on the case said, let take a statement from him and let him go. Guess what? They let the killer go. They let him leave. So did that create problems? Yes, it did. Because once they cleared the other boyfriend who she lived with, now they had to go reapprehend the real killer. And now guess what he did? He lawyered he up. Lawyered of up. course, he lawyered up. So the, they had a shot at him to interrogate him as the main suspect. But for some reason, someone wasn't feeling it. And they said, take a statement from him and let him go. Now... They had to build a case without a statement. And they did. And that guy's doing 25 to life right now. And he got convicted anyway, largely on some uh, really, really strong blood evidence. And uh, so sometimes you can fix an investigative mistake. And sometimes you can't. Snug with Pug. Thank you so much for the $14.99 super chat. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you want, if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to support us, you can go on our Patreon, 
and we have three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. And you see all the folks in the chat with the green font. They're big supporters of Police Off the Cuff, and we appreciate each and every one of them. We love our subs. Yeah, absolutely. Phil, so, I mean, again, this case is going to come down uh, to science. Science is going to solve this case. But that doesn't say that investigative tenacity and getting out into the community and talking to people. I always found with my homicide team, with my A-team, that drag as many people in as you can. Bring people in. Get out into the bars. Get out into the community. Talk to people in the bodegas. Go into the housing projects. Talk to people. Reach out to your CIs. Confidential informants. I had mentioned before that we don't want to leave the, the criminal element alone with this. We got sex offenders in these neighborhoods. Let's bring them in. We got parolees in this neighborhood. Let's bring them in. They have no choice about being brought in. Their parole officer says, come in. They can't say, well, I'm busy. No, come in or I'm going to pick you up in handcuffs. They're not free. They're on parole, you know. So bring those people in. Let's talk to everybody. Shake the tree. That's a favorite NYPD expression. Go out there and shake the tree and see what falls out. And that's going to be how we get information. However, I still believe that science is going to be what what solves this case 100 billy science the forensics that was recovered at that crime scene the 113 or 103 i've heard uh, both reported pieces of evidence that were recovered at that scene is going to be key to connecting the killer to the crime scene uh, i agree with you 100 on that and i also agree what you were describing good old-fashioned police legwork uh, detective legwork that's what's going to solve this case get out there uh like you said i'd be uh talking to every person on a sex offender registry within a hundred mile radius of that location every parolee should be spoken to and every person that gets arrested in and around that area they need to be debriefed find out you know anything about this case is there anything suspicious and you know uh one of the talking heads that i saw in the news today made a really good point maybe there's a person that stopped coming to work or hasn't been around since the day of this murder. That might be something that you might want to drop a dime on to the local police or to the hotline number, because now maybe this guy, whoever he is, committed this horrible, heinous quadruple homicide and is in fear of being captured, doesn't want to go out of the house, doesn't want to go to work, uh, whatever it may be. So that's one of the things that I think might be good to put out to the public. Uh, be aware of your surroundings, obviously, uh, but if you saw something suspicious, you have to go back to that date or around that date. If you saw something even before that date, the date of the murders, that is, if you saw someone lurking around, someone sneaking around, uh, a creepy neighbor, whatever it is, that's what the tip line is for. Let the police do their work. Let them figure out if it's uh, something that is a dead end or if it's something worthwhile to the investigation. Good point, Phil. You know, folks, the other thing is, is that the police are asking for uh, video still photos, anything you may have on your phone. Um, I would assume, and I don't know for a fact, that the bar that um, that Ethan and Zena were in, I would imagine they have video. And I would hope that the police have interviewed the bartenders, the owners, the bouncers, pulled the video out of there, spoke to everyone that even works in that location. That's how we're going to come up with a suspect in this case.
New twist in the murders of four University of Idaho students. Police are now saying that they are not sure if the victims were targeted. Walking back statements from prosecutors about the investigation, the shift comes after people across Idaho gathered for emotional vigils to honor the four students who were lost. NBC News correspondent Morgan Chesky joins us now from Moscow, Idaho. So, Morgan, this is the second key detail about that case that has kind of changed. Early on, police said there was no threat to the community in the, in the first few days and then they said well wait maybe there is and now they seem to be walking back another detail can you explain yeah kate i think a lot of the confusion or surrounding this targeted statement stem from the fact that when the prosecutor said that it could be location-based and not individual-based uh, that got a lot of people thinking that it had shifted the direction of the investigation when i spoke to a spokesman for idaho state police about where they're looking into uh you know this specific term he says that they do believe this was a targeted attack however it's still too early to tell in this investigation if they believe specific individuals were targeted or if this location was targeted perhaps this uh, killer thought someone else maybe lived inside and targeted that home per se not knowing specifically who was there um or, or finding out it was someone different inside. It's still too early to say exactly. There is, of course, a lot of confusion. I think the pressure on the investigators to provide more answers has somewhat only exacerbated that. Kate? Yeah. Uh, the families of the four students spoke at a vigil last night, right, Morgan, at the University of Idaho. Can you tell us a little bit about what their message was to the community? Yeah, very somber affair. They were asking everyone to celebrate the lives that these four young people lived and not dwell on how they were taken away. I want you to hear what the mother of Ethan Chapin had to say uh, when she spoke to a crowd of several thousand who listened in absolute silence. Take a listen. We are eternally grateful that we spent so much time with him, that that's the most important message that we have for you and your families is to make sure that you spend as much time as possible with those people because time is precious and it's something you can't get back. Yeah, a, a tough night for so many people here in Moscow. Authorities still asking the public to help them build out this detailed timeline. They really want to nail down exactly where these victims were in the final few hours of their life before they returned to that home. They've been in the process of ruling out individuals as suspects, but they say that uh, any tidbit of information could be vital. Kate? You just feel for those parents. Morgan Chesky, thank you. You know, Phil, I, I, when I see these parents, it really breaks my heart. And when they're so, I don't know, so forgiving, almost in a way, not forgiving of the killer, but just accepting that, you know, their kids are gone. And there's a special place I think in heaven for those people I really believe that and I won't be standing next to him because I could not be forgiving if my son or my daughter a family member was slaughtered in this way and I still I still admire them I admire that they can feel that way but um I ca I, ca I can't feel that way I I, I more, I'm, I'm more from the school of Hammurabi's code you know an eye for an eye, and uh, that's that's how I live my life, whether it's right or wrong. You know, Billy, I uh, I have to agree with you. That's uh, that's a tough one to swallow. Uh, I don't know that uh, I 
could even get up there and speak if uh, one of my uh, one of my children was slain in that way. Yeah, I don't think I could. The other part, the earlier part, it, it just confuses the hell out of me. You know, not, did they did they target a person or they targeted the house? How would you come up with that? That someone, some killer accidentally targeted this house because he didn't like the house? I just, I'm not getting that. I'm not feeling it and I'm not understanding it. And I think it's it's rather poor messaging, you know. I think more more people can understand that a person in this house was targeted. Well, was the house targeted because it was a loud party house and someone from the community didn't like that? I, I find that far-fetched and, and not – I don't see how you can defend that or how you can even say that. Billy, I want to bring up one of the comments in the chat. Sharon Oshrend uh, says, does anyone know what the neighbor does for a living? His interviews have a creepy vibe. I'm not going to mention the neighbor's name because he's been in the in the news and stuff, but I agree with that. He did give a creepy vibe. He's talking about that uh, he would walk his dog and he would see the back of the house and he would see through the windows that there were people, uh, parties and different things like that going on. And uh, he just gave me a creepy vibe that he said now because he's being... Uh, threatened or, or harassed online uh, through uh, different uh, forms of the internet that he's carrying a gun now. So again, that's somebody I'd definitely be talking to. That neighbor did show some interest as far as uh, my eyes are concerned uh, based on the statements and uh, him creeping around behind the house, looking in and seeing that there's a party going on or seeing people, uh, maybe the windows weren't covered. So uh, I would definitely be looking at that guy. Somebody asked about his, uh, his whereabouts. If he, uh, what he does for a living. Well, apparently he's in law school. He's studying to be a lawyer and um, he may be creepy. He may be inappropriate, but someone like that, I believe he's put himself out there. The police would grab him in there and ask him for a DNA sample, major case prints, and they'd keep a close look at him. I mean, to think anything different would be gross incompetence. So, I mean, I think that when uh, there's a lot of things, of course, that we don't know, and those things, of course, bother us, but we don't know because we're into the third week and there's no answers. And this is one of the most heinous murders that we can imagine on any of, of kids this age, you know, uh, a quadruple murder with a knife. It's it, no matter where you work, no matter what police department, no matter what city, this is not a common event. A quadruple murder is an oddity no matter where, and you could be in Chicago, which is the killing fields of the USA, uh, Baltimore, Washington, D.C. These are not common things. They're a lot different, you know, when we talk, people talk about shootings. Shootings are horrible, but they're, they're, it's like a shooting is impersonal. It's an impersonal thing. Whereas, as we said, murder with a knife is up close and personal. And a quadruple murder with a knife is times four. So it's 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 hard. It's not, as I said. And multiple not, stab wounds, Billy, too. It's not like they were just stabbed once and the guy took off. These were multiple stab wounds. Very extremely personal. Uh, I think the nature of, of that says something about the killer right there. And you, you're making the point, you know, you can fire a shot from across the street and kill somebody. Uh, this was up close and personal, 100%. And that's given us uh, a little bit of an indication, let's say some type of a profile of the killer. 
You know, someone asked in the chat, how do you prove you were sleeping? Well, one way is your cell phone is probably right next to you, like your little dog, like your little puppy. And that's going to that's gonna hit at the cell site right where you, where you lay your head or, or closest to where you lay your head. So there's one uh, alibi. Perhaps they're talking about... Uh they're saying that the victims were sleeping when they were killed. If they're talking about that, I think that um, no defensive wounds, uh, maybe uh, a kill shot to the sh to the chest, and and the person really isn't uh, disturbed in the bed, so to speak. Uh, there's a lot of different ways, and forensically, I think uh, crime scene investigators can uh, really answer that and say whether or not they believe the person was sleeping or not. Uh, Willis Pony, this case is very frustrating considering how bloody it was. Seems like a lot of evidence to hide. You know, Willis, we were expecting that, of course, and everyone expects that the, the perpetrator cut himself uh, and that his blood would be in the crime scene. That still is yet to be undetermined. They could have his blood. They could have his DNA. However, if he's not in the DNA CODIS database, that stands for the Combined DNA Index System, which is uh, collected and maintained by the FBI on a national level. If he's not in that CODIS database, then DNA that they collected, blood evidence that they collected, is not going to be able to be identified, at least immediately, unless they start, you know, there's a potential that down the road they could do uh, genetic genealogy, you know, because either this perpetrator or his family probably lives in the Moscow community. So he may not be in the CODIS database, but down the road, if they need to use genealogical DNA evidence, there's a possibility they could do that. Yeah. Also, once they collect uh, blood that's not of the four victims, we know that that's probably going to be of the perpetrator. Now we have a suspect. Let's say we start to zero in on somebody. We get a DNA sample from that person. We see if it matches up and bingo, we have a hit. And then we have somebody that we can put in the box, try and interrogate them and build more evidence. Obviously, their whereabouts, where they were, uh, get search warrants for their home location, cell phone, computers, all different things like that to build a case, you know, and then tr also try and develop if there was some type of a connection between any of the victims and that suspect, you know, there's, uh, you know, the good chance that there is a suspect and they're just not releasing it at this point based on the fact that they're waiting for the forensics. They did talk about it. It was reported in the news that some of the forensics were expected to be coming back. Some of the testing this week, uh, you know, after post Thanksgiving, uh, we're already up until Thursday of the week now. So we're hoping that, uh, that is happening. That is coming through again, a lot of the cell phone information, the cell tower dump, a lot of those things take time. And, uh, you dump a cell tower, you're going to wind up with maybe hundreds of thousands of records, a, a lot of records, let's say, and that's going to take time to go through. So again, uh, patience is needed in this case, but, uh, let's hope that the wheels are turning on it. South Texas. I get it. But these two are talking like NYP. And Moscow idea, similar, vastly different apples to bricks comparison. But South Texas, that's why they brought in the FBI. That's why they brought in the Idaho State Police. There should be no dollar limit on how much they will spend to solve this case. That shouldn't be a factor. Also, techno technology, the FBI has everything. They got the big bucks, they got the ability to do things. We've talked about geofencing. And I don't think people totally get that. That costs a fortune. And they won't do it for any case because, as I said, it costs a fortune. But guess what? The big fat pockets of the federal government 
through the FBI, they're going to do that. Every damn scientific test that needs to be done costs lots of money. But guess what? They're going to do it on this case because it's a horrendous case. So don't think of just the Moscow PD. It's a small little police department. They don't have the capability. They're going to get the capability because they have help from the Idaho State Police and the FBI. And if necessary, the ATF, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. So they're going to have all the help, all the money they need. So they're just going to stay with this case. Yeah, but Billy, you know what? South Texas is, is making a point that I have to agree with. There's going to be, uh, in the NYPD, we're going to have experience. We're going to have knowledge. We're going to have instinct because we're going on these type of cases, murder cases, shooting cases on a daily basis. Uh, they're not going to be as familiar. Even the FBI agents in that area may not be that uh, well-versed in homicide investigation. So uh, again, there is a point to what he's saying, but you also make the point that that's why they called in the state police. That's why they called in the big guns, the FBI, and they do have every possible, uh, you know, uh, forensic uh, ability. They have all the, uh, you know, the specifics on cell phone towers and, and uh, videos. They can break down videos and blow things up and, and uh, enlarge them and stuff like that. So they have all the, uh, technical technological equipment. They have all the expert equipment. So again, that, that's a good point. But sometimes in a case like this, you do need that instinct to say, you know what, let me go do this. Let me go do that. Let me go check this. Let me go check that. And then you get a feel when you talk to people, you know, detectives by nature become, it's like a sixth sense you pick up. Uh, maybe it's just from experience in doing it that you can kind of tell when a person's lying or when to tell, tell when a person is nervous or apprehensive, you start to read their body language. Let's hope that there are investigators on the ground in Moscow that can, uh, can do that. Just me. Great point. What about students that left as a result of the murders? Could be another student did this, went home and took whatever could be potential evidence with them to ditch. Yeah. You're on your hundred percent, right. You know, something I don't discount anything. And the fact now, obviously this was premeditated, right? So did the killer wear gloves? Did he maybe wear another set of clothing over his clothing? Because he knew it was going to be a bloody scene. You know, we see the crime scene and crime scene technicians, are supposed, they call it PPE, personal protection equipment. And what it consists of, is a Tyvek suit, those white suits that you pull over your clothes and you zip them up and it has a hood and you wear the little booties. That's for twofold reasons. And it's called low cards theory of exchange, that when you go into a crime scene, and I've said this ad nauseum, you bring something with you from outside. And when you leave the crime scene, you take something with you. That's not good. That's why Dr. Edmund Locard invented that exchange theory and said, we have to protect the crime scene through protecting our clothing, wearing personal protection equipment, and realizing that we can bring something into the crime scene and take something out. So in, in that, we have to protect it. But again, could the killer have, have knows all these things and wore gloves and wore maybe something over his clothing because he knew that he was going to get blood and then discarded it? maybe burnt it. You know, we, we realize all of these things could have occurred. Yeah. Again, again, we have to figure out a motive on why this happened too. You know, that's the other thing. We have all the theories about entrance and exit and, and we have the theories, well, maybe he wore gloves and all of that. But again, we have to figure out what was the motivation 
for this person to go into this location and slaughter four people. Now, again, we've been told uh, it was targeted. One of them, one or maybe more than one of the individuals had defensive wounds. So again, uh, very, very important to figure out the motive part of it. So that's where the victimology would come in. That's where you've been looking into the backgrounds, looking into the whereabouts of where they were earlier that night, were there any beefs outstanding, were there stalkers, stuff like that. So again, all of those things might lead you to the perpetrator of this crime. 100%, Phil. And you can't do enough canvassing. You can't do enough walking out into the community. You can't do enough of people collecting video and still photos and just talking to as many people as you can. That is 100% important. People are literally freaking out here. Like, I mean, I can't like tell you that enough. Like people don't go out at night. They think the killer is among them here. Um, you know, people have put double locks on their doors. From miscommunications to new details, it's the latest in the investigation of the University of Idaho quadruple homicide case. Senior national correspondent for News Nation, Brian Enton joins to discuss what he's learning on the ground in Moscow, Idaho. Welcome to Sidebar, presented by Long Crime. I'm Jesse Weber. Sir, why not tell the public who the target was? You've said that this was a targeted attack. Why not tell the public who was targeted? If it was multiple people, it would go a long ways to telling the public what you're looking for and who you're looking for. Folks, this was a question, probably a, a couple, this was the first press conference. And this person, this journalist asked this question, and I think it was a good question. However, at that point, I totally agree that the police chief needed to keep this stuff very close to the vest. For the type of person you're looking for, why not do that to alleviate some of the fears out there in the community? Well, first and foremost, we have the integrity of the investigation to preserve. And we feel like that information is integral to us and how we conduct our investigation. Releasing that to the public may or may not flood us with a lot of information that's not relevant or specific to what we're looking at. We're continuing our coverage of the University of Idaho quadruple homicide case. I'm talking about the brutal killings of four students, 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves, 21-year-old Madison Mogan, 20-year-old Zana Kernodal, and 20-year-old Ethan Chapin. Their bodies were found in their off-campus home out in the college town of Moscow with a preliminary coroner report indicating that they had been stabbed to death. No arrests have been made. No suspects have been identified publicly. And while we are learning new details, a major issue in this case is communication, particularly by authorities. So I want to bring in someone who, who can help sort all of this out and give us the latest in the investigation. I'm joined right now by senior national correspondent for News Nation, Brian Enton, who is on the ground in Moscow, Idaho, and has been doing terrific reporting on the subject. Brian, it's great, and thanks so much for having you uh, here on Sidebar. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Can we start with this kind of weird development we're seeing about who exactly was the target of this? Because that narrative keeps changing from law enforcement to the prosecution's office. Can you walk us through briefly about what we're hearing from each side and how confusing it is? Yeah, it's really, really confusing. Uh, early on, um, police said that this uh, this was targeted and, and we asked for more um, information about that for them to elaborate. And they said, we're not going to give you information. You're just going to have to trust us. So this was like a week ago. Um, on Tuesday, I finally got a sit down interview here in Moscow with the prosecutor 
Um, and I asked him, what did, what do you mean by targeted? C can you explain this? And he said, you know, to my knowledge with the investigation, we don't have any evidence that one of the victims specifically was targeted, but we have evidence, uh, we believe that the residence was targeted. Um, and so that's what we went with. And then yesterday, they basically issue a correction and say that there has been an internal miscommunication between the prosecutor and the detectives who have been in like constant communication, the, you know, works differently in different places, I guess. But the you know, folks, that's uh, we were talking about this before, and that's inexcusable. I mean, you really need one person, one entity to be doing the talking, not first of all, the prosecutor very rarely uh, ever uh, talks in, in these cases. The only time the prosecutor talks is when the case is in the courtroom. That's after the arrest. After the arrest. Yeah, that's the prosecutor's venue. Yeah. The investigation, the police should be handling this. And that's why the wrong messaging is going out. And it's really hurting this case. And it's making people feel that the police don't know what they're doing. And that it's really, I can't stress more and more that it's really hurting the case. It really is. The prosecutor is like very involved here in the investigation. Um, so they said there was an internal miscommunication and now they they cannot say that that any of the victims or the residents was specifically targeted. They, they say that that's all still under investigation. Yeah. Look, just from my point of view, I, it's sometimes every case is different. But to have the lead prosecutor come out at this point when you don't even have a suspect, I, I always found that a little curious. Sometimes it's different in each investigation. I found that, but but what's the most alarming to me, Brian, is this is not the first time we've had this, right? Wasn't when this first happened, there was a big question about, is the public at risk? Is there a public threat? And wasn't there a backtracking of that as well? Yeah, there was. They initially said that the public was not at risk. Um, and then, of course, got pushed on that because they didn't have any information about who the killer was or what happened or a motive. And then had to backtrack on that also and say, well, we, we can't really say that. Um, so I think they're trying to walk this line. But I mean, you know how it is like this is a small town. People are literally freaking out here. Like, I mean, I can't like tell you that enough. Like people don't go out at night. They think the killer is among them here. Um, you know, people have put double locks on their doors. I went to the vigil last night. They have. Um, you know, uh, metal detectors to get in and police with binoculars up in the balconies. So I think they're walking this fine line of trying to keep the community somewhat calm. Um, but at the same time, also being open that like, they don't really know what happened. And it's understandable because they've never been in this situation before. And we'll get into kind of what the community is feeling because my understanding is Moscow's a pretty quiet area. There's no, there's nothing like this that ever happens. Does the, from the people you've spoken to on the ground, do they have confidence in law enforcement? Do they have confidence in the investigation right now, given the right hand is, doesn't know what the left hand is saying? It's sort of mixed. And I think it's also changed in the last 24 hours with this admission of an internal miscommunication. Um, but a lot of people here do have confidence. I mean, you know, they, it's again, small town. A lot of people know the police officers, the police officers and the prosecutor work very, very closely together. And then there's also the Idaho, Idaho state police who have been brought in and the FBI. You know, Phil, as much as, um, the police are, you know, telling everyone how hard we're working and, you know, 
that doesn't give people confidence. You know, of course you're working hard. You better never go home until this is solved. You know, I mean, in my homicide experience, you know, we, if we had a case like this, I would probably never go home. You know, I would stay at work and maybe get a little sleep every once in a while, a couple of hours here and there. But that's the reality of this stuff. But this miscommunication, they really got to get together. The, the chief of police of Moscow, uh, the district attorney, the state police and the FBI and just come up with a plan and say, look, I will talk for I am the spokesperson. The chief should be the only person talking. No one else should be putting anything out there because that is where it gets very confusing. That is where people lose confidence in their police. That is where mixed messages go out. And it really, really does hurt the case. Absolutely, Billy. And we went over it earlier. We think that someone, uh, all the heads should come together. Someone should be the spokesperson. And again, they could hand out a daily briefing to one another uh, every day to see this is the latest updated information and then uh, decide if there's going to be a release to the press or not. And, you know, the press could be used too to uh, promote leads to put information out there about rewards. Uh, if they do come up with something, a suspicious vehicle, obviously you want to get that out there as soon as possible. Perhaps there's going to be an eyewitness that saw someone. Maybe they can do a sketch, put a sketch out there. All of these different things are stuff that you can utilize the press for and, you know, have a good working relationship with them. Uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, I've had it where we put out a short clip of a video and boom, within uh, a few hours, we had the calls on who the perp was. So, again, things like that. Uh, well, absolutely. The, the police should play the press like a fiddle. And, you know, they use them to, to their advantage. And they withhold information as they need to. But they also have to understand how to put out pertinent information to gain help from the public, but also to put the public somewhat at ease. You have a whole community here that realizes that this brutal murderer is still out there and the police aren't lowering the temperature. They, they need to lower the temperature. That's the people are really in fear of their lives. I want to mention something also last night was the memorial for these students. Uh, and I, I really believe that the potential that the killer was there is, 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 is rather large. Uh, and I spoke about, how in my homicide career, I would sometimes photograph the crowd to see who is there. And chances are that there is a possibility. And I'm not saying I know this sounds serial killer-esque and something from a movie or a book, but believe it, these people get off on stuff like this. And could the killer have been in at this at this service, at this memorial service? The potential is absolutely there. We've had killers in the past that, you know, whether they killed their wife or a friend or a loved one, uh, you know, persons reported missing. They're out there talking to the media, pleading for that person to come home, uh, you know, conducting searches, and they turn out to be the uh, perpetrator of the act. So, yeah, again, that's something that we would always do. We would uh, go to a homicide scene. We would, uh, if it was out on the street, we would always jot down all the license plate numbers of the cars that are parked on the block and the uh, possibility that maybe the perpetrator came there in a vehicle, left on foot, and, uh, you know, uh, 
trying to get out of there in a hurry, different things like that. Again, uh, license plate numbers would give you information on who was parked on that block. Perhaps that person saw something. Again, we would run the plates, try and talk to the people, the owners of the car to get information from them. And again, if you have a crowd that's, uh, you know, gathering, just turn the cameras around and just take some photographs of the crowd. And, uh, you know, sometimes you do get somebody who may know something and you can show them those pictures. Do you see the guy who we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. There he is in that picture, you know, different things like that. So those are all tactics that uh, we would employ during uh, an investigation of this sort. Folks, this is police off the cuff, real crimes stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have, a YouTube channel memberships with five different levels. And the folks in the in the uh, chat with the green font, they uh, are our supporters. I want to play a little bit of the um, of the parents speaking about... Um, Bill, I want to make a point, a quick point. We talked about with Mike Vecchione the other night we were on about how different things going on in the case could perhaps uh, give a defense attorney... Now, I'm going down the line, Bill. If there's an arrest, the person gets an attorney. A defense attorney, this might give a defense attorney some things they could bring up a trial to uh, question or, or to impeach uh, the theory behind the prosecution's case. They're going to say, well, were they targeted? They weren't targeted. Was the house targeted? You know, these are things that can be brought up to to create doubt in a jury's mind. So again, the messaging is not good and stuff like that could be detrimental toward a prosecution down the line. You know, Phil, one of the things is that you don't become a homicide investigator uh, through osmosis. You know, it takes a great deal of experience. And uh, on the NYPD, uh, we learn from other detectives, other, in my case, other bosses. And believe me, I learned a lot of stuff from detectives. But I started out in my investigative career uh, as as the robbery boss, and I did robberies for years. You know, I had a, a twelve detectives that w- it was in New York City was known as a RIP unit, robbery investigation program, and that's how I cut my teeth in investigation. And then I moved into the squad where I investigated everything. And in my last ten years, I was in homicide. But I was I in a very exact busy- same thing, Bill. I was I was uh, patrol anti crime, and I was in RIP for a couple of years, and then I went to the detective bureau all along the way, learning from older, more experienced detectives. So I agree with you 100. Right. It's so it's understandable that the Moscow Police Department, not having a, a homicide in seven years, they don't really, they don't have the skills to do this, and I, I'm not putting them down. It takes experience. And there's obviously the highest level of crime you can investigate is murder. And it takes a lot of experience and a lot of, uh, you know, interview and interrogation and learning from other detectives in order to uh, cut your teeth on this type of crime. You throw a Mikey Heinrichs into this case and a few other good investigators and they might have a different outcome by now. Not that you don't always think of the victims, but I was at the vigil last night and it's like, oh my gosh, you hear the stories. I mean, three of the families were there talking about these kids um, and it's just heartbreaking. I mean, they were all seemed like incredible kids, you know, hard workers. One was about to graduate, had a job lined up. You know, they were in love. A couple had boyfriends, um, just just terrible. Um, and, and again, I mean, you know, it was weird at the vigil too, you know, it was in an indoor arena that you look up in the rafters, they had police with binoculars, they had undercovers, they had a ton of police, the metal detectors I mentioned, there was a very real concern that the killer could show up at the vigil. I mean, even the Dean of Students told me that, 
that they were prepared for that. So, you know, all of that is going on in these people's minds as they're trying to grieve and figure out what's going on in their town. And it was mostly the people there. Did they know the victims personally? Is it more of a community coming together? Because we know that, uh, and we'll get to it in a minute, members of the community, the law enforcement is asking members of the community, if you know something, if you have credible information, come forward with it. The majority of the people that were there, did they personally know the people that were affected, the families, or were they there coming together as a community? I think mostly coming together as a community. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds. There may have been a thousand people there. It was pretty full. Um, but again, Greek life is huge here at the University of Idaho. I mean, it's really big. And all of the um, victims were in different sororities and fraternities. So like everyone in those houses knew the victims and, you know, everybody partied together. There were a lot of people crying. I noticed at the vigil, which made me think like, I think a a lot of people knew them. The house was also known to be a party house. They had parties every weekend. So I got the sense that, you know, they had a very large social circle and a lot of them were at the vigil. I thought it was interesting that during this vigil, uh, Kaylee Gonsalves, father revealed that Kaylee and Madison were killed together in the same bed. Now, I am not sure if we knew that beforehand. What did you make of that comment? Yeah, stunning. We did not know that beforehand. Um, and I wasn't expecting like a big investigative piece to come out during the, during the vigil. So that shocked me. Obviously, there's a sad component. I mean, they've been best friends forever, these two. Um, you look at their social media, they, you know, being best friends since they were little kids. So it was just very sad to think about that they got killed together in the bed. But also interesting when you think about the investigation. Um, I was also thinking to myself, you know, we had asked police many times, uh, can you tell us where they were in the house? Can you tell us who was in which room? And they've always said, no, that would really compromise the investigation. So, so there's some information, obviously, that the police didn't want to come out. And I think that's one of the reasons that they stopped telling the parents inside information because uh, the parents and family members are getting interviewed by not just the press, but some uh, they've been on some YouTube channels and that type of thing. And that sort of um, it, it takes away the secretive nature of evidence that you're trying to protect. Absolutely, Billy. And again, we've talked about it many, many times. We like uh, are of the school that we want to hold back as much information as possible. The reason for that in most cases is that when we do get a suspect, we bring somebody into the office, we bring somebody, put them in the box, we start to interview them. We want to see uh, what they're going to lie to us about. If we know certain factors about the inside of the crime scene and they start to describe something else, we know that they're not telling the truth or possibly they're not involved in it. So again, all of that stuff is very, very important to keep close to the vest. Um, you know, if they did, you know, the, the, the families do have a right to know certain information. I mean, listen, let's face it. Their, their young children were slaughtered and I guess that they do have a right and they have, uh, an expectation that they should get certain information. But again, uh, the investigators would, implore them and and really beg them not to divulge any information because it's uh, detrimental to the investigation. So I think that if that's done, I'm sure that the families would uh, cooperate with that. I heard one of the fathers that spoke over the weekend, he said that, he says, the police asked me not to divulge certain things and he didn't. Alan Levine, one homicide in seven years. We have one every 18 hours in Philly. No doubt. You just know, one, just one in Philly. The seven five squad back in the uh in the 90s, their motto was you give us 22 minutes, we'll give you a homicide. Yeah. Uh, 
because and they used to have on their wall in the seven five squad uh, it, it would say on the wall in the interrogation room if you know someone who killed someone let us know so you can go that was in their that was in their interrogation room so i, I think uh, they had about 200 homicides just in that one precinct one year and the precinct uh, boundaries were only one square mile so they they really put, were on the board for a lot of homicides in the 75 for sure that was uh, the heyday of uh, the crack epidemic crack wars no absolutely phil i uh, i'd like you to um, go to the joe murray commercial now Joe Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. I spoke with Joe earlier today, very busy in his law practice, and he is a tremendous criminal defense attorney and a friend of police off the cuff and supporter. Folks, you know, you want, you may ask now, um, where do they go from here? Uh, I think what they need to do is have a real organizational meeting with all the bosses on this case and review what they're doing right, review what they're doing wrong and fix it, you know? And the number one thing they're doing wrong right now is in communicating with the public. The messaging is horrific and they got to get better at that. They got to, cause that's going to help them solve this case. You know, in the Boston marathon bombing, uh, if you guys are familiar with that, the Zarnayev brothers, um, who were, you know, Chechen, Chechen terrorists. Um, the, the way they were caught was that the crowd that was there sent all of their video and all their still photos to the FBI. And that's being done on this case. So could that lead? They're doing all the right things. It's just you need one smoking gun piece of evidence that's going to lead to this guy. And that's what's going to solve this case that smoking gun piece of evidence that is going to lead to this killer. Bill, I'm glad you brought up the point about maybe regrouping. Maybe it's time to regroup. Go over the case folder. Look at some of the interviews that were already done, some of the canvases. Sometimes you have to re-canvas. We've had cases where we knock on a door, we do a canvas the first day, we do an interview, the person tells us nothing. Six months later, we knock on that same door, they pull us into the apartment and give up the homicide, give up the murderer. So again, maybe it's time to start doing that. I know it doesn't seem like a long time. That's usually down the road when you really start to hit a dead end that you go do re-canvases and re-interviews. But you know what? Pick some of your most important interviews that were already done and canvases maybe close to the area. Go back, knock on the doors. Maybe someone else is home now, a different person that can give some more information. Those are the type of things that I would be looking at now. And people have talked about a cold case. This is far from a cold case. A cold case, and I said it the other night on the show, is a case that it's not being worked on every day. This case is being worked on 24 hours a day, I would assume. And it's not a cold case. It's never going to be a cold case for a very, very long time. So I think that it'll be settled and it'll be solved before it becomes a cold case. Well, Phil, I hope that they do keep the pressure on and they keep the amount of personnel that you need a lot of personnel to investigate this case. You may be able to streamline it very soon to maybe cut uh, some people 
out of it that aren't really uh, working day to day on this case. But I think that they need to keep the pressure on. They need to keep working 12 and 14 hour days, six, seven days a week. And they really need to kick, as we said, the old NYPD expression, shake that tree. Deborah Barron, could it be someone who got the boot from the university, could not make the cut? Deborah Barron, it could be anything. Yeah, good point. Right. It could be anyone. And, you know, something, any points that you guys raise here, I, if I think they're feasible or make sense, I'll, I'll, I'll go with it, you know. Heather, whatever. That's the scariest thought, that he could be in a crowd. Heather, you know something? I know that from prior experience when we've arrested killers and they said, oh, yeah, I was in the crowd when you guys came around. Remember I said hello to you? I mean, scary stuff, right? The guy, um, this guy, Matias, that was the, the Central Park rapist, uh, you know, the whole Central Park Five case, he walked out of Central Park after that and, and said hello to a detective. And a, a detective, of course, didn't know what had just gone on because it wasn't reported for like eight or 10 hours later. So, but just think how horrific that is. You that know? happens a lot with Austin cases too, where uh, an Austin still set a building on fire and then he goes into the crowd to watch. That's the, uh, the, the thrill that they get watching the fire burn. There may be a, some psycho killer out there that likes to, to watch the detectives uh, stumble around and trying to figure this thing out. So again, it's very, very possible, quite possible that the killer could have been in that crowd. I'm certain that the uh, law enforcement was there to protect everybody uh, as the reporter was reporting. And again, uh, photographs, probably a video of the of the crowd, probably very important to the investigation. Danny, this case will not go cold. It, yeah. I will guarantee it will not go cold. You know, they will be working on this case. And you know something? If there comes a time where they need consultants, where they need help from the outside, they'll have to get it. You know, there's always, you know, there's always a time to bring uh, a fresh look at a case. Uh, and there, look, there's professional consultants out there. You know, there's there's former police commissioners, there's former chief of detectives out there. And I'm not just saying from the NYPD, from departments from all over the world. We're an expertise. Um, you know, we, we've covered a lot of cases this year. Uh, the former Boston chief of police who was in charge during the Maryland, brilliant guy. You know, there's so many, uh, you know, real law enforcement experts out there that if they need help, they can get it. They can get these people to help them out. And, and some of them, you know, are paid consultants and some of them, I'm sure if they were asked, they would, they would volunteer, you know, because this is a case that must be solved. It must be. You know, Billy, you were talking about uh, that we're going to work on it uh, 18 hours a day. The tip line is going to be covered 24 hours a day because you never know. Someone might pick the uh, phone up at 3 o'clock in the morning and give information. And now if that information is pertinent to the case, it needs to be worked on right away. You need detectives standing by. You need personnel standing by that can get out there and go do that interval, interview or go chase down that lead or go look at that location, whatever it is. So, again, this is going to be a 24-hour process till this case gets solved. Uh, again, uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, like you said, Bill, probably no days off for any of the uh, main investigators in this case, the main detectives, uh, seven days a week and probably long days, 17, 18 hour days, I'm certain. And there needs to be a 100% 24 hour person on that hotline with personnel standing by in case something 
uh, of uh, very important nature to regard to this case comes in that they can jump right on it and get right out there. Stuart Schwartz motive. Yeah. With about we 20 about question marks. Yeah. Yeah. And I gave my opinion and many talking heads all over the broadcasting world, all over the press have given their opinions. My opinion is that it's someone from the community that got disrespected in some way by one of these girls. That's my opinion. And he became so enraged at it that this is what he did. And that's just my opinion, an educated opinion. There's many, there's people out there talking heads that think it's a serial killer. I personally do not think it's a serial killer, but you know, I've been wrong before. And even Stuart Schwartz, I'm glad you put that, but, but even my opinion of what it, it may be, off it may be off look they have fbi behavioral analysis unit is here but they that's not a you know i've said it before. not an exact science it's not an exact science i don't mean to beat down on the fbi but it really is not an exact science so what they predict using their analysis tools may or may not be correct my opinion on the motive for this case is going to be almost parallel to what you said, Billy. I believe it's someone from the communal community at large. I think it's going to be someone that had a hunting background and experience based on the weapon and the the uh, the way that the uh, victims were killed. And I think it's going to be probably something similar to what you said, not exact, maybe uh, someone in the community who was maybe a little jealous of these college students coming into the neighborhood for a few months out of the year, renting a house. Maybe they got a few bucks, a fancy car. Maybe that person doesn't have that. And again, there might be a type of disrespect uh, or jealousy that, uh, we didn't see on the surface. However, this stood inside of this person and perhaps uh, that person took it out on that specific location because they were close by, close proximity. But I really do believe it's going to be someone from the community close by. Perhaps they did have some type of a uh, relationship with one of the victims in that house or one of the people who survived in that house. We don't even know if the other people were targeted on the first floor and the, the killer just didn't get there. That's also a possibility. Again, a lot of different possibilities here, but my opinion, I think it's going to be someone from the area familiar with hunting and a grudge against uh, the people in that house. Orion 99, they need to offer a reward. Hopefully someone there is a reward, and will stitch and give a lead. What's the reward up to? I think it was up to $20,000 last I saw, something like that. I'm not certain of the uh, the reward, but that was a few days ago, so it could be more. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's reward out there. And you know what? Uh, rewards do open doors sometimes and, and lead to uh, conclusions, uh, successful conclusion of cases. Absolutely. Shadow Dancer, the police have gone silent. Very telling. Well, you know, we spent the, the beginning uh, of this uh, broadcast today talking about how the messaging has to totally improve. The messaging is horrible. It was horrible from day one. Day one when they put out this is targeted and personal and no one has anything to worry about. Where did they get that from? That was horrendous, you know. And from that day, it's gotten worse because they really need – to get the message out there. They need to do another press conference. They need maybe to do press conference every couple of days because, you know, stuff, people start making stuff up and that creates a, a shit storm of rumors and it creates things that it makes, it makes it tougher to investigate this when you don't put certain truths out there. And I think 
the time has come where they need to do that. Billy, I'm going to piggyback on what you just said, because there was that neighbor. He There was a story in the paper today about him that he was getting threats from uh, Internet sleuths and different things like that. Listen, everybody's entitled to their opinion. You could think something. You don't have to say it publicly or put it on the Internet or point the finger at someone that could complicate this case and this investigation. Because he'll take the investigators away from a real suspect and put them on this other person that may or may not have anything to do with it. So, again, let the investigators do their job. Uh, people that are uh, podcasters or uh, content creators should have no business getting in the in the face or in the way of uh, investigators in this case. God forbid they should be interviewing principals on the case or people close to the investigation. Everybody should just take a deep breath, uh, have some patience, step back away from it. Nobody says you shouldn't have your opinion or if you want to create content, but stay out of the direct line of these investigators and this investigation. That's very, very important. It could compromise it and it could compromise it down the line when we go to prosecute whoever it is that did this horrible crime. Folks, someone asked in the chat that uh, Kaylee and uh, Madison were in the same room. Where did that come from? That came from uh, her father, you know, uh, from uh, Zaina's, excuse me, Kaylee's father. So that's not something I think that the police wanted out there. I think that was one of the reasons they stopped uh, giving a lot of information to the family because or families because they didn't want certain information to be, to be released to the press. If you notice, the press is interviewing family members uh, pretty much every other day, and the the press has a certain um, narrative they want to put out there about this too. And it seems that you know the frustration with oh my god they don't have an arrest yet, you know something. Homicide investigation is a tough business. Not every case gets solved in the first 48. I know the TV show, The First 48, tells us all that if it's not solved in the first 48 hours, the chances of solving it become that much more difficult. And that happens to be true, but it's not impossible. It makes it more difficult if it's not solved in the first 48, but not impossible. Bill, quick point. Uh, I don't know for certain if the police told, uh, I believe it was Kaylee's dad, that uh, she was in bed with, uh, with uh, I guess it was Madison. So uh, again, he might have assumed that. We don't know for certain, but it does sound like maybe there was information that he had gotten from the police and he, uh, he uttered it. Maybe they shut down on that. But uh, again, uh, there's just so many things that uh, the news media does that gins up people and gets people's emotions up. I mean, when there's a thunderstorm coming in, they put red alert on the weather report. And it's just a simple thunderstorm. Now, granted, we do need to know if there's going to be a thunderstorm and stuff like that. But uh, just an everyday thunderstorm during the middle of the summer doesn't sound like a red alert to me. So again, that's what their job is. They want to gin people up. They want to make people in fear. Uh, again, they do also are warning people. They're putting the word out there about there is a killer out there, a killer that killed four innocent kids. So I get it. But there's also that component of the news media that they gin people up. So again, uh, maybe the family members shouldn't be talking to media so, uh, uh, so much if they want to put a face to their children. I get that part of it. Maybe, uh, there's going to be someone with emotion that knows information. They'll see those, uh, grieving parents and they might come forward with some information. So there's, there's a give and take on both sides of that. So, uh, but the press, they do tend to gin things up and get people, uh, you know, into a, a, a frenzy, so to speak. Absolutely. Dr. Edward Moskowitz. Thank you so much for the 1999 super chat. 
I'm glad to be here to learn. Very professional. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Montgomery. It's uh, very much appreciated. New block era. Sergeant, during your time serving, has politics and ego hindered criminal cases? Example, prosecutor's office, NYPD, not on the same page, not communicating, leaks coming out. You hit it on the head. Politics and policing. The P in policing stands for politics because, yeah, they politics goes head on in policing. The DA's office sometimes has a certain agenda, and the NYPD has a different agenda. They could now they couldn't be further apart. The district attorney has uh, in in New York City has a position of not prosecuting many crimes, and the police department, of course, arrests and then they expect a prosecution. They don't they don't always get it. You know, Billy, it's funny how when there's a high profile case, people just seem to come out of the woodwork to go jumping in front of the cameras to be on the news and stuff like that. But when it's just a, let's say, I don't want to call it a routine homicide, but a low profile homicide, a homicide where let's say some drug dealer gets shot or something like that. And the police detectives working it. You don't see people from the prosecutor's office responding. You don't see all these different uh, talking heads, mayor's office and different things like that. This is a high profile case. I get it. There's a lot of people involved in it. But the messaging needs to be honed into one, you know, just one uh, office, one uh, set of people, a group of people that are going to handle the messaging and decide what is going to be deciphered to the public. But they need to clean it up right away for sure. Absolutely. Amy Hale, imagine the amount of different DNA profiles that are in that house. Good point. You know, we I had mentioned earlier on that from a lot of people perhaps that live in that house or spend a lot of time in that house, they need to take elimination, elimination DNA and elimination fingerprints so that people that are allowed to be there, we can pull their DNA and identify it. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't confuse with who the perpetrator is. Of course, hundred percent. That's, uh, that's going to be standard in a case like this, Billy. There there is, uh, you know, people talked about there was parties there. There's going to be a lot of different fingerprints and and DNA profiles, hundred percent. But the one DNA profile we're going to look for is the murderer. When we do narrow down a suspect, they'll get that DNA. They'll put it in, in the comparison to the DNA that was recovered from the blood and stuff like that. And again, we, we may very well have the killer's blood mixed in there, commingled with the, uh, with the victim's blood and, uh, but they'll be able to decipher it and uh, zero in and make a 100% match. And that would lock the perpetrator into the crime scene. Absolutely. You know, folks, I, I don't I see some people in the chat making a big deal out of the two girls sleeping in the same bed. I don't think that's a big deal. I mean, girls always girls are much friendly. I mean, two guys would be a little different, but I think, you know, girls are always much closer and, and feel much more comfortable. It doesn't mean anything sexual. It's it, it just that they're, you know, they're closer. They're friends. They're friends that grew up together. I don't look into that or think anything of that. Listen, Bill, I have three daughters. It happens all the time. My nieces come over to the house. They're friends. Everybody's slumbering. They just jump into beds. It means nothing at all. Very common, especially in a, in a, a college situation. Now, I did read in the chat that uh, someone said that I believe it was uh, Kaylee or, or, or Madison. I'm not sure which, that they had moved out and they had gone back to get stuff and they decided to crash there. That might account for why there were two people in the bed. So again, um, you know, not a big deal in my mind. I have daughters of college age and even when they were younger friends sleeping over, like I said, my, uh, my nieces, their cousins, not a big deal at all. 
Iris Hewlett, could they be reconstructing the crime scene? Iris, I think they're, they're still really uh, trying to see what the, they're making out of the evidence, you know, because there's collecting evidence and then there's processing the evidence. And a lot of the evidence probably hasn't come back yet. And that's the job of scientists, you know, serologists, uh, people that identify DNA, the crime scene technicians that lift fingerprints. What fingerprints are of value? You wouldn't believe how tough fingerprints are to lift and how getting fingerprint hits is, is sometimes a rarity, you know. Absolutely, Billy. And those are the things that good crime scene investigators uh, get in there and they do. They can actually reconstruct what they think took place based on the evidence that they see. Uh, we talk about Ed Wallace, who is an expert in crime scene. A guy like him, a good team uh, along with him, would be able to put all the pieces together and figure out what they believe transpired and the uh, the uh, chrono chronological uh, order of which things took place too. Uh, again, it's not easy. It may not be exact, but it'll get a pretty good idea. Sometimes it'll be right on the money. So again, that's uh, very, very important stuff. And, you know, fingerprints, uh, that's like DNA uh, today, you know, fingerprints is like old news, but fingerprints are very important because fingerprints are an exact match. And we talked about major case fingerprints where you have, you have prints on the side of your hand on the tips of your fingers that could match up uh, to a, a suspect. So again, someone that they believe could be in the suspect pool, they'll do major case prints. They'll take the uh, uh, sides and the fingertips of the person uh, to see if that matches up with any of the prints that are recovered at the scene. To Finney in, if they did fight back, there's a good chance one of them has DNA from the killer. They won't mention if that is or not. Eventually when the killer is found, they will say then. I, You know, one of the... Uh, if there is a checklist that pathologists use, one of the things they always do, of course, is they scrape underneath the fingernails for DNA to well, identify. Even, even before that, Bill, at the scene, we're going to bag their hands. That, that's right. one of the processes. We'll put bags, paper bags, we'll go over their hands and they tape around the, the wrist. So that way, if there is some uh, forensic evidence under the fingernails, it doesn't fall off in the transportation of the victim's body. So again, and then like you said, Bill, uh, when the autopsy is performed, scrapings from under the fingernails, you could have the, the killer's DNA right there. And, and that's going to be, uh, you know, 100% concrete evidence of a, of the person that did it. Yeah. You know, Phil, I, we've been actually going for an hour and 22 minutes. And I, I hope that folks, you guys that were uh, came by and are listening and watching, I hope that uh, we enlightened some folks. Uh, we gave you some good information. I, you know, I don't like to make guarantees at all, but I'm pretty confident there will be an arrest in this case. There definitely will be an arrest in this case. When? I can't say when. But, you know, look, in a case like this, we want the arrest to be immediately. And because it's not, yeah, everyone's losing it. And, you know, I'm getting a little impatient, too. However, I understand the process and you can't, you know, invent evidence. You can't invent a suspect. You have to go through all the steps of a criminal investigation and do it by the numbers so that when you do get someone, you built the case and you have a case that's triable and winnable in a court of law. And that's hopefully where the Moscow police and the Idaho State Police and the FBI are heading towards and uh, we're, we're rooting for them. 
Quick point about the uh, video you played from Ashley Banfield with Brian Enton. He was at the back of the location. He referred to that first level as this as the first floor and the top level as the second floor. That's really the second and third floor. In my opinion, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say that that was the uh, uh, exit or entry, uh, the entrance of where the perpetrator went to that location, either from the uh, second level or the third level. Uh, she pointed out that, you know, maybe someone could have uh, jumped onto that third floor level. They refer to it as a second level, but that other deck, there are two sliding glass doors there. I believe either one of those doors is going to be the entrance that the perpetrator made into that location. Yeah, I agree with you, Phil. Doc Tor, still no word, nothing about the corner club sports bar, Sarge. Two of those girls hung out there. Strange, no word at all, no video release. My hunch police have something up there. That's why. Very possible. And look, I wouldn't, if I had the video from the bar and I was the police, I wouldn't be releasing it, you know, because could that have the perpetrator on it? Absolutely. But there's certain things you don't want out there. And that would be one of them. <laughs> you know, Billy, that's a, a real good point that he brought up there. You know, someone in an alcoholic rage, there are people that had that uh, uh, alcoholics that they have uh, alcoholic blackout. So in this blackout, this person could have, like you said, gotten blown off by one of the girls and followed them and went into this uh, rage and maybe not even remembering what they did. So anything's possible, but that is a good point. That bar, I'm sure it was canvassed, re-canvassed. I'm sure that they, if there was video that they collected it, that's going to be uh, a very big point of contention with regard to this investigation. Absolutely. Phil, uh, you know, you just sort of had your last point, but uh, we're, we're going to uh, we're going to close up shop right now. Folks, again, thank you so much for tuning in tonight. Phil, I'll give you some final words, even though you just sort of had final words. Final words. It's just a little frustrating what's been going on with the messaging on this case. But I do have faith and I do have a lot of hope that there's going to be a, a, a successful conclusion to this case. There's going to be an arrest. I could feel it in my bones. I'm hoping it's sooner rather than later. I've said that at nauseum about sooner rather than later, but let's keep thoughts and prayers for these families and these victims. And let's just uh, hope, like I said, that we get a conclusion soon. Phil, 100%. And I, we all root for the Moscow police, the Idaho state police, the FBI, the ATF, who's ever working this case, uh, May God walk walk with you, you know, and uh, let's hope there's an arrest soon. God bless everyone. Have a great night. Stay safe, everyone, and God bless. One episode, just